We continue, this is part six today of our series, uh, working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And once again, uh, grateful to James Grant for being with us, uh, guiding us through uh, this series. And so James, come and offer God's word to us. Thank you. It is a delight to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The text is also in your liturgy. We've gotten, we are now at part six. Thankfully, we have come to the end of Thessalonians. This was not one of those sermons that is like the coming of Christ that you keep wondering when it's going to make it to the end. (laughs) We kept a pretty quick pace and uh, have covered this in six sermons. So we're going to look at the last section this morning, and then I actually have one more Sunday with you next week. That Sunday, next Sunday, we'll back up and look at the big picture of 1 Thessalonians. I find that helpful. Um, So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, And are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now at this time to seek your grace, and to seek your spirit. We are thankful that you have met us again for worship as we have entered into your presence, that you have drawn us to you. And now at this time, as we look at your word, we pray that you will open our minds and our hearts and have your spirit do a work to transform our hearts so that we might be more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. As we come to the end of Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, I believe Paul is concerned here in these final verses to leave these Christians a picture of a gospel church. What does it look like to live together in a gospel community? Now, John Stott, in his commentary on Thessalonians, calls this section the Christian community, or how to be a gospel church. 
One of the reasons uh, that theme is so prominent is because the family of God notion, the notion of being a family together, is a prominent New Testament theme. And at the very beginning of this section, Paul in verse 12 says, we ask you brothers to do this. He starts by addressing them as brothers, brothers and sisters, we would say today. And he continues that in verses 13, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 27. So one of the cautions we have as we come to this section is we do not need to look at this section as just a lot of do's and don'ts. Hopefully that's not the way you read the text anyway especially after we've tried to highlight the gospel-centered nature of Paul's instructions. But instead, this section describes gospel life, how to live in light of the gospel in a community, the way brothers and sisters should live together in the church. Just as we were singing at the very beginning of the service, Oh, How Good It Is. If you notice the words as we highlighted that, that that hymn highlights how good it is when the family of God dwells together in the spirit, in faith and unity, how good it is when it's the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love, when that's the fruit of our presence together. And then the chorus says, so with one voice we'll sing to the Lord and with one heart we'll live out his word till the whole earth sees that the Redeemer has come, for he dwells in the presence of his people. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in this section. How this should look, not only as a a gospel community, but as the community loves one another and worships together. So there are several things that highlight the significance of this being a gospel community. One is this... uh, uh, notion that Paul is highlighting the family of God, brothers and sisters. Another aspect that we're highlighting a gospel community is some of the ways he instructs this. Notice at the end of the letter, he says in verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. That was a very common cultural custom then as the community gathers together to show the love and affection that they have for one another. And so as we come to this section, we have here something like family guidelines for the congregation. And Paul groups these guidelines under three sections regarding congregational responsibility. Three sections regarding congregational responsibility. Number one, the congregation and the pastor in verses 12 through 13. Then the congregation and its love to one another in verses 14 and 15, and then I think in verses 16 through 22, the congregation and its worship. Those are the three sections that we'll look at this morning. So first of all, Paul addresses the congregation and its leaders in verses 12 through 13. Throughout the history of the church, there's been some tension in the church about its leadership. Sometimes we see leaders placed in exalted positions that's simply not biblical, The leaders of the church are put in positions almost like the priests of the Old Testament where to get to God, you have to go through them. And at other times, which is probably our cultural situation now, Christians uh, do not look very respectfully upon leadership, whether it be in the church or the broader culture. Sometimes it's viewed with suspicion. A lot of times in our current climate, cultural climate, um, the corporate world teaches to look with suspicion on what leaders are doing. 
So these two extremes are always temptations that we have to avoid. But Paul wants us to understand that neither one of those is right. God has called and placed leaders within his church, pastors and elders, to shepherd Christ's people. And Christ has delegated to these pastors the responsibility, according to the New Testament, of oversight. Paul describes these leaders in three ways. First, Christian leaders labor among you. Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. The ministry is a life of work, not just in terms of the study that's required and the knowledge of Scripture and handling it appropriately, but also in terms of the community dynamics, the social relationships, and the ministering to people in times of crisis. All of those are aspects of the labor of work that Paul is describing here. It is a mental and emotional labor for the minister. Other passages in the New Testament describe what it looks like in detail, but Paul here simply highlights the fact that the Thessalonians are to respect those who are doing this labor. Christian leaders have the responsibility also to shepherd the people of God, which I think is Paul's point as he makes the next statement, to uh, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. It is tempting to read that statement over you in the Lord as a statement of control and power, but that is not the indication of New Testament leadership. And many leaders, sadly, are tempted to lead that way. But this charge from Paul is not a charge of power. Gospel ministry follows the pattern of Jesus Christ. It is a pattern of service. Here's what Jesus said in the Gospels. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the pattern of ministry, according to Jesus. It's that last verse, one of the central verses in the gospel, I think, for even the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, God himself, comes into the world not to be served. Just catch that statement. All the other pseudo-gods, false gods, myths at the time were seeking service from the people. Jesus says, I came into this world not to be served by you. I don't need you to serve me, Jesus says. I came to serve you and to give my life as a ransom for you. This is the call of the ministry. It is that kind of service. It's why it's described as picking up your cross and following Jesus. To be great, the pastor must be a servant of all. To be first, you must be that kind of servant, according to Jesus. And finally, leaders, pastors, are called to admonish the church. So those three things, labor among them, lead over them as servants, and then third, admonish the church. 
Now, that's a rather difficult part of the job. It happens certainly in the sermon. As we preach, you'll hear a message, and it's astounding to me how everyone leaves with something different, right? I mean, I don't have any idea what happened to you this week. And, and you leave, and when you leave, you say something to me like, you, you will not believe that I have to face this decision, and what you said there helped me clarify this in my mind. I didn't do that. That was the Holy Spirit at work. But it does happen graciously through the proclamation of the word. And that same message, that same sermon, that same line can have a different bearing on a number of different people in different ways. And, and that's part of the admonishment. But Christian leaders are also charged not only to instruct from the pulpit, but to do a work one-on-one. And, and part of that ministry there involves ministering to the person appropriately. And so this aspect of admonishment is not that kind of notion of heavy-handed admonishment that we hear in that usually, but that same kind of servant love. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't, don't say hard things. There's often times when I've had to sit, sit across from someone at coffee or lunch and have a conversation about some very hard situations. Those things have to happen. But that admonishment needs to take a direction where the minister is trying to seek to minister to the person sitting across them because each person is unique. Now, those ministerial aspects apply to the congregation as well, and that's where Paul shifts now, to the congregation and acts of love. After Paul has addressed the issue of leadership in the church and the congregation, he now turns his attention to the whole congregation by addressing our responsibilities toward one another in verses 14 through 15. One reason we know Paul is shifting that way is not only is he now saying respect those over you, but in verse 14, he now says, and we urge you brothers. He shifted back to that family of God language. The charge is to the congregation. And it's an outgrowth of how pastoral ministry is supposed to take place. So the pastor, the leaders minister, and the congregation ministers as well. And so as he turns his attention there, the charges to all of us. And this is a helpful corrective to not go overboard thinking that the pastor is responsible for all the ministry of the church. Because the church doesn't function as the church if you don't love and minister to one another. And so Paul describes three groups of people who need to be loved. I found this immensely helpful when I first saw this. Paul describes three groups of people who need to be loved. He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Those three groups of people. So first, admonish the idle. Idle is not the best translation here. The word doesn't mean lazy. That's what we hear when we hear idle. Instead, uh, the word should be translated disorder disorderly, disruptive, or unruly. That's the notion that Paul's highlighting here. Admonish the disorderly, admonish the unruly. These Christians that Paul's highlighting here that were called to love and encourage or, or admonish, 
are out of order. Paul calls them in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, and I think he's talking about the same group when he gets to 2 Thessalonians. He calls them busybodies. Right? Do I need to explain what a busybody is in the church? Right? I, I don't think I do. Most of you are smiling and nodding. The one that is always in every other person's business, everything that's going on, they think they need to be charge of a committee or something. I mean, I, you fill in the blank for what that means. Paul says you have to admonish them, encourage them to do their work quietly and earn their own living, Paul says in, in 2 Thessalonians. And so have them focus on that. These Christians seem like they're disrupting the peace of the church by that kind of busybodiness. And so Paul says, for not only for their benefit, but for the benefit of the whole congregation, admonish them. Now, I'll have you notice that he doesn't just say, pastors, go deal with them. He says, brothers and sisters, deal with this. Because it's not good for the life of the church. Secondly, Paul also encourages us, uh, urges us to encourage the faint-hearted. Now, this word literally means the small of soul. Now, why I find this helpful is he has in one place just now highlighted this disruptive conduct, and we need to deal with that kind of behavior. But now he's he's talking about what the ESV calls faint-hearted or the small of soul. It is the discouraged. You have to approach those people completely different than someone who's a busybody. It's two completely different attitudes. Those who are discouraged have to be handled tenderly and carefully. I think there are two reasons why in Thessalonians, Paul highlights those who are discouraged here. One reason is we know the background of the church. There was heavy persecution when Paul was there, and Paul had to sneak out by night. And so he's writing back to them to say, please press on and continue on in the faith. So they could be discouraged because of the suffering. A a, a community leader in the church named Jason, according to Acts 17, was thrown into jail. That can be quite discouraging. How would you feel if one of the leaders of the church got thrown into jail because of their witness as a Christian? So that can be discouraged. And a second reason that they could be discouraged is just the reality of death. We saw that in chapter 4. That topic of loss prompted Paul's discussion of the second coming of Christ. And so the very aspect of death is discouraging. It is the case, I think, that death often creates some of the most faint-hearted moments in the Christian faith. When you have to face the loss of a loved one, especially if you're one of those early Christians and you didn't think they would die before Jesus came back. So Paul says you have to encourage these people. Do not let them get discouraged and give up. Encourage the faint-hearted. And then the third group is the weak. Now, we could be tempted to see weak here in a spiritual way, but I think that's what we just described. The faint-hearted are those who are spiritually small of soul, who are spiritually discouraged. I interpret, and, and a host of other people do as well, the weak here, not in that spiritual internal way where you feel like you're losing your faith, 
but in a physical way where you have to minister to those who are, have lost a job or who, are, who, are, who need help with food. Whatever the physical situation is that they're facing, Paul wants to highlight you need to help them as well. In the church, this is generally the category of ministry that the deacons take care of to be aware of the physical needs of those who are in the congregation and work to meet those needs. Now, do you see how Paul highlights three groups of ministry for you? Disorderliness or disruptiveness, the busybodies, minister to those, the faint-hearted and discouraged, help those and encourage their faith, and then the physically weak, who are struggling with economic difficulties or something like that, maybe even sickness that could result in faint-heartedness, alleviate their pain as much as you can. Those three areas cover a broad range of ministry in the life and community of the church. And what I find fascinating is the very next two commands that he ties together in community life. Be patient with them all. That's the first one. As you deal with each one of these different areas of ministry, be patient with each person because it is tempting to look at someone in a difficult situation. Let's say they're struggling with being discouraged and just go, what is wrong with you? You have all this stuff. Why are you feeling this way? Please don't do that at first. Seek to listen. Seek to understand. Seek to hear. I think it's the same principle in marriage, isn't it? Some of you who are married have to face this. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that has to do this with my wife. And, honey, why do you feel that way? Tell me what's going on instead of going, as I did in younger days, I don't know why you feel this way. Just look at this. We've got all this stuff, and this is great. I will, what? That's just on deaf ears at that point. You know that, right? That's like dropping a brick in the water. And my neck is tied up to the concrete at the bottom of the water. That's what happens. Take ministry the same way. Be patient with people. Now, look at the next command in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good with one another and everyone. When I first came across this passage, I thought, why in the world does Paul have this here in congregational life? And then after being in ministry for a while, I realized why. Because when you sacrificially serve someone and you love them and you feel like you gave your heart to listen and then they get angry at you and they leave the church you're tempted to pay them back when you see them next time. Or maybe that only happens to me. You're tempted not to love. One of the, some of the hardest moments of learning to love have come for me in the life of the church. Because I go into it thinking, it's not supposed to be like this. We're supposed to love one another. We, we love Jesus. We're supposed to be able to work through these things. We're supposed to be able to sit down and have a conversation and work it out, right? That doesn't always happen in the life of the church. And then when you lose a really close friend who was in the church and you ministered together and loved one another and served on committees and helped each other with your children and you look at it and the relationship breaks and you can't fix it. 
You're tempted to blame the church. It's just human life. Sometimes those things don't get fixed this side of heaven. And that's why Paul says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Don't take vengeance back out. Don't minister with bitterness and vengeance. And don't, whenever that happens in your life, don't let that be an excuse not to love someone the next time they need to be loved. Because you have no idea why they're hurting. And you have no idea the seeds that your love's going to plant into their life. Always, Paul says, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's life in the body. So now we move to the third point, the congregation and worship. So Paul has highlighted the congregation and its leaders, the congregation and its love, the interaction between one anothering. And now he highlights the congregation and its worship. Now I want to point out why I think this part, uh, this section is moving towards worship. Um, At first sight, verses 16 through 22 might not look like... much on worship. It looks like it might be a list of responsibilities before God. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. It looks like it just may be a list of things to do. I'll give you several reasons why I think Paul is highlighting the corporate gathering here. First of all, all the verbs are plural. When Paul's speaking here, It seems that Paul's describing a collective and public act, not an individual private Christian duty. Depending upon our geographical location, we might say in this section, y'all. Or you all, if you're not from around here. (laughs) Or you guys. Secondly, in verse 20, prophecy and prophesying is considered a public act. That edifies the body. Old Puritan manuals called preaching prophesying. For a long time in the history of the church, prophesying was a replacing word for preaching. And third, you have that verse 26, the holy kiss, which was a common public act in worship for the church. And then finally, verse 27, Paul highlights in this section, he wants them to read this letter publicly. And we know when they gathered as a congregation that they read Paul's letter as the sermon in some cases. So this is not just a list of private devotional disciplines. There can be applications for that. Instead, I think it's addressing corporate worship. And what you see here is headings for worship, rejoicing praying, giving thanks. Ralph Martin, a scholar of the early church in in worship, says this section reads like an example of elements in a worship bulletin for how a church is to conduct itself in worship. He says uh, this note of glad adoration is struck at the opening. Rejoice always. Make the flow of the congregational worship rejoicing. Prayer and thanksgiving are coupled together which is a trait that came from the Jewish synagogue tradition. Christian assemblies are counseled to give caution to how they interpret prophesying in the spirit. So I think, based on those reasons, this section is a section highlighting worship. So let me say a word about worship before we look more closely at this. 
Uh, worship at one point became uh, very significant in my thought process and for the church I pastored. As I looked at the history of worship in the church and the context of worship in the Old Testament, and I think that worship is best described as a covenantal act. The main headings of a worship service, and even in in our uh, liturgy that we have, the whole thing flows like this. God calls us to come worship him. God cleanses us from our sin, forgives us, grants us that notion of forgiveness. God consecrates us and instructs us by his word. He communes with us at the table, and then he commissions us to go out. That's a basic pattern of a worship service. That is also the basic pattern of the covenant in the Old Testament. Every time God came to someone in relational dynamics of a covenant, Abraham, Noah, David, Moses, the children of Israel, it all has that pattern. And so what we're doing when we gather for worship is re-entering, re-expressing this covenantal relationship with God. I think worship helps us re-narrate our lives, to see our lives in light of a different story. Because every one of you come here with a certain story. I don't know what that story is. You, I hope, can tell me what that story is. And sometimes that story is very negative, that you feel shame or anger. Sometimes you may feel acceptance, but you struggle with it. Sometimes you may feel like God's distant. I don't know what that story may be that you're telling yourself. But when you come into worship, the the responsibility of the church is to reshape that story in light of the gospel. So that you, as you come here, are called into God's presence. That's why we have a call to worship. God has called you here and we've gathered in his presence. And in his presence, he serves us. That's what Mark 10, 45 said. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And he serves us. The way God serves us and works with us is he sends his spirit. We sing hymns. He responds to us by promising us forgiveness. There's a back and forth dialogue in worship with God. And now you're sitting here listening to the word and he's instructing us through this word. And then in a moment, we're going to shift gears to communion and he's going to meet us at this table and remind us again that you're forgiven. Why is it that over and over and over in Christian worship, the repeating theme is a gospel theme of forgiveness. It's because when you walk out of that door, it's one of the first things to go because you think you're not forgiven. Deep in your soul, you feel like you're not forgiven. And every Sunday, if the worship works the way it's supposed to work and the preacher preaches the gospel the way he's supposed to preach it and the communion takes shape, then you're supposed to leave with that benediction that tells you to go in peace because you're forgiven. And then you go through the course of the week and you forget and you struggle and you do something that you know you shouldn't have done and you're like... Why not do this again? And you come back Sunday and you re-enter that story again. That's what worship does. And so Paul is highlighting the significance of worship here because he does not want them to lose that. 
In the midst of their pain and suffering and struggles, he wants to highlight that aspect of worship. And so we gather, we rejoice, we pray together. The whole worship service is one big prayer service. And we hear God's word. That's why this section on the uh, on prophesying is important. If you'll notice, verse uh, 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, John Stott called this section, listen to the word of God, as he explained this passage. And although the exact expression isn't here, the topic is the word of God. Our worship service moves from emotionally engaging God with hymns of praise and prayers of confession to hearing his word and him speak to us and instruct us so that we might be properly uh, informed and understanding of the gospel. That's what the notion of prophesying here is. Now, of course, you all probably have friends in the charismatic tradition that feel like prophesying still happens. Even for that tradition, there's a host of New Testament passages that highlight you have to test those things. You have to test whatever's being said. And you don't have to be a charismatic to have a friend who takes the word of God and wants to provide you instruction. And depending upon how that friend instructs you, that may range from, you know, the Bible says this about abstaining from every form of evil, and I would encourage you not to do that, to God's really leading me to tell you that I don't think you need to do that. You've been in those ranges? You test all of it according to the word of God. Just because someone feels deeply that God moved them to tell you something doesn't mean it's in line with the word of God. And so you test it all. You don't despise it. Who knows how the spirit works in these unusual ways? You test it. The same thing is true of preaching. Anything I say or any sermon you hear from the pulpit needs to be tested by the word of God. Hopefully, you can test it right away from the text that the preacher's in, as opposed to a sermon that has rumbled everywhere around and not dealt with anything the pastor read when he first started. But at the same time, there's a host of more, there's a lot more letters than Thessalonians. And so you have to test what is being said. Whatever is the case, there's a highlighting here by Paul of the word of God as a standard. Even though he's writing letters that become the word of God, he has the Old Testament, he has, you have other things in place, and you can look at what's being said and test it. I would strongly encourage you to make sure that's a mental part of your ministry to one another and in the life of the church. And so Paul says, hold fast to what is good. And then that verse 22, a little side note on on verse 22, the old King James Version translated verse 22 as abstain from every appearance of evil. The ESV still has abstain from every form of evil, which gives the wrong impression. 
it's actually, it's closer, I think, to rejecting whatever's harmful. That's the translation of a commentator named Gordon Fee. So what it actually says, what's closer is hold fast to what is good and reject whatever's harmful. Now, I don't know about your Christian past, but that verse 22, where the King James translated it as abstain from every appearance evil, caused untold confusion in the Christian life whenever it was applied to drinking, smoking, cussing, dancing, movies, and everything in the early part of last century just to avoid it all because it all looks evil. And it's not even what the verse says. As helpful as it may be to do certain things appropriately, it's not even what the verse says. The verse says, hold fast to what is good and reject what is harmful in the context of these instructions. Now, God has given us, Paul has given us instructions on communal life and relationships and dynamics. And now we come to the end. And it encourages me greatly how Paul ends his letters, especially here as he's talking about worship and community life and all the stuff he's talked about. His high, the major thing that he highlights here is that whatever it is you're facing as a congregation, whatever it is that you're facing in your personal life, you can trust God. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May he do that ongoing work of peace deep down into your soul. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I pray that you believe that. I pray that as we wrap this up, that you believe that what God started, he will finish. And he is faithful to do this in your life. And that you can believe and trust that as you continue this journey as a congregation and as individuals, that God will not leave you And he is faithful to see you through whatever you have to face. That, my friends, is the gospel. It's why we call it good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us your spirit so that we could be confident in your promises. We pray, Father, that we would have a great degree of confidence in the gospel that we would view your work in the life of this church and other churches and ministries as the good news as Jesus is present with his people. And we would pray, Father, as we've looked at this passage and as we come to the conclusion of this book, we would pray that what we've seen, what we've read, and Lord, even what we've sung this morning about how good it is to be the family of God would be true in this place. We would pray that this congregation would dwell together in spirit and faith and unity to be a witness to the bonds of peace. And so we pray that with one voice we'll sing to the Lord and with one heart we'll live out his word till the whole earth sees the Redeemer has come and that he dwells in the presence of his people here at Grace Community Church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.